1: Hi everyone, Laszlo Montgomery here once again. You didn't ask for it, but I gave it to you anyway. This is part two in a special 10-year anniversary edition of the China History Podcast. Even though we're still in the middle of the uh, History of Xinjiang series, as a special bonus to commemorate the first decade of the CHP, you get in this special program at no additional cost to the already low price you've been paying since 2010. So, let's get back to our exciting story. Last time we all got to hear about the setup to the whole drama about to unfold. Now it was time to actually make these hopes turn into reality. Richard Nixon, no dummy when it came to political astuteness, knew with a high degree of certainty liberals and conservatives would both roast him alive if they knew this path was being explored. The liberals, because many among them hated Mao's excesses and dictatorial ways and most conservatives were dead set against this because talking to china was like taking a knife and stabbing our south vietnamese taiwanese and japanese allies in the back and then there was the whole matter of the soviet union and the interesting cold war dynamic that existed there at this moment in time (laughs) yeah nixon was right to keep this one under his hat He knew if he got the State Department or Congress involved, his China dream would leak to the press in five seconds flat, and then he'd be under attack by everyone, even before he got to first base. So Nixon and all the president's men, the ones he trusted, they had two secrets to keep. First was the diplomatic aspect. No one could know the U.S. was jonesing to establish diplomatic relations with China and all the implications of such an act. The second secret was the actual visit of Nixon to China. Not only was this a matter of great significance diplomatically, but politically, for Richard Nixon, this was a career-defining coup that could very well become the crowning jewel in his long life of public service and politics. You know, we look at our world today in the age of terrorism, cyber warfare, coronaviruses, and all the terrible things that stresses out the very fabric of the nation and we think "Oh, such terrible times there's never been anything like this before well 1968 1969 in the united states despite the release of both yellow submarine and abbey road those were also as stressful of times as we've ever seen and plenty of people back then just like now were wringing their hands and wondering how did it ever come to this and would this nation survive and with our foes causing us so much angst led by the PRC, and especially the Soviet Union, with all we knew back then, well, it was no less scary than it is right now. Nixon was barely in office a month when on March 2nd, 1969, the Chinese ambushed some Soviet troops on a frozen island in Siberia on the Usuri River. The Soviets called it Domansky Island. The Chinese called it Chunbal Island. There was about 20-minute skirmish there, and 23 Soviet troops were killed and 14 wounded. Thirteen days later, on March 15th, there was a more intense battle with tanks, along with anti-tank rockets and artillery. It was the USSR versus China in the winter, engaging in a full-fledged border war. No one would back down, and it dragged on for half a year. And by the time it ended on 9-11, 1969, Mao Zedong started planning what to do next. So with Chairman Mao stewing over what had just transpired on the Usuri River in lands that once belonged to the Qing Empire, but had been peeled away from China by Russia at a time when the country was weak, Nixon used this raw wound as a perfect pathway to the Chinese door. After this kind of dust-up they had along the Usuri River... Surely Mao would be in more of a mood to talk to the United States than before. So Nixon guessed right on that point. President Nixon had to move fast because there were some liberal elements in Congress who wanted to cozy up to China. These were mostly Democrats, led by Nixon's enemies, Hubert Humphrey, Eugene McCarthy, and Teddy Kennedy. And there was no way Nixon was going to allow them to get the jump on him. So in addition to other reasons that made the early part of 1969 so timely, there was all that jockeying going on by Democrats to start a dialogue with China. So Nixon had to move fast and secretly to ensure his competitors and his quest didn't beat him to Beijing's door. However, it must have been comforting for Nixon to know that after the big announcement, whenever that came, was a fait accompli. He knew he already had this base of existing bipartisan support already in place in Congress. He knew the court of public opinion was going to go into a frenzy, and he needed all the support in government he could get. Mao Zedong had his reasons, too, for wanting all this to come about. Of course, he was anxious to show the Russians he wasn't someone to be taken lightly, and he wanted to use this meeting with Nixon as a way to shock the Soviets with regard to ongoing and future matters of mutual concern between those two antagonistic neighbors. Ever since Stalin died in 1953, Mao had his eye on the USA. Even through all his atrocities and railing against the West in general, and the U.S. in particular, Mao knew he was going to need the U.S., and it was better to have them on China's side than against China. He had to embrace Stalin, of course, when the Chinese communists came to power. There was no way America was going to recognize the PRC, having cast their lot in with the nationalists. Mao had no choice back in the 40s but to embrace Stalin, who gave the CCP international support, Soviet technology, and arms. But Mao was no dummy, and he knew the real prize was China's number one enemy, the USA. So for the rest of 1969, the relations between Russia and China, to say the least, were not too good. And there was a real and valid fear that these whole border tensions could erupt into war, even a nuclear war. Over the course of 1969, Mao met with his most trusted comrades-in-arms, men he had allowed to be purged during the Cultural Revolution, but who Mao still had high regard for. These were Marshals Ye Jianying, Nie Rongzhen, Chen Yi, and Xu Xiangqian, all four heroes of the revolution and close comrades of Mao. Together with Premier Zhou Enlai, they all pondered the matter of the U.S. and what options the PRC had with regard to this possible overture by the Americans. It's simply fascinating how all this started to happen. 1969, we didn't have any diplomatic relations yet, so there were no official channels to talk. That left backdoor channels. But who to trust? What trustworthy mutual friends were there? Well, there was France, there was Pakistan, and there was Romania. We used all three of those backdoor channels, and it was slow-going and tedious. In May 1969, Nixon sent his Secretary of State, William P. Rogers, to get in touch with Pakistan's president, Yahya Khan. Secretary Rogers was requested to ask Pakistan's leader how the Chinese might view the notion of direct talks with the USA. Yahya Khan, though not the most popular and admired of Pakistan's leaders, played a pretty significant role, along with Ambassador Aga Hilali, in getting these talks in motion. During the fall and winter of 1969, Pakistani diplomats, on behalf of the USA, began feeling out Zhou Enlai about this matter. So as China and the Soviet Union were fighting this border war, the U.S. continued to use this back-channel diplomacy to start to feel around the edges and see if there was a way to get this going. Nixon was really sending strong signals, and the Chinese were interpreting these signs that he meant business. September 17, sixty nine, these four marshals who I just mentioned, that was Ye Nye Chen and Xi, as requested, they wrote their now famous memo to Mao, saying China's strategic benefit lie in conspicuously making use of tensions between the Americans and the Soviets to quote strengthen our position, end quote. They advised Chairman Mao to engage the Americans in these talks and that Despite the contradictions, it was, in the long run, in China's best interests. And that the Soviet Union was China's greatest threat, not the United States. The border war had expanded to Xinjiang, and on August 28, 1969, a major battle took place there between PRC and Soviet troops. This 1969 border dispute was getting worse, not better. In short, at talks that were coming up in Warsaw, the winds started blowing in the direction of engaging the Americans to see what they wanted. And the Americans were, of course, already chasing the Chinese. Then in September 1969, Mao blew off two more H-bombs within a week of each other, an underground test and one dropped from the air over the Xinjiang desert, with a million Soviet troops at his border, ready to invade at a moment's notice, This put the Soviets on notice that Mao now had the wherewithal to inflict some heavy damage, too. And he didn't need any missiles to do it, because the two countries were right next door to one another. He could inflict pain on the Soviets the old-fashioned way, by dropping a nuclear bomb out of an airplane. By October, the Chinese and Soviets went back to the table and resumed their border dispute discussions. In October... The heat between the Chinese and Soviets had risen so high, Mao had ordered all the top leaders to leave Beijing and base themselves throughout the country, just in case the Soviets dropped a nuke on the capital. The Chinese military was operating on first-degree combat readiness alert. Another huge signal Nixon sent to the Chinese came in October 1969 when he canceled the naval patrols in the taiwan strait that had been going on since the korean war this was how we flew the flag and symbolically demonstrated our commitment to taiwan so we passed this bit of news to a visiting pakistani diplomat who dutifully brought it to the chinese this impressed them and was taken as a good sign both sides were sending little signals to each other doing things that both sides noticed Quietly. In early December 1969, another important player in this stage of the negotiations, the American ambassador to Poland, Walter J. Stussel, reached out to the Chinese charge d'affaires there, Lei Yang, and told him straight out that President Nixon was interested in direct talks with China's leaders, namely the premier, Zhou Enlai.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. And as another act of good faith,
1: remember that trade embargo put in place back in 1950? Well, the U.S. didn't lift it entirely, but non-strategic goods were allowed to be traded. Another inch closer. As urgent as things were, the talks were carried out secretly, and in such a diplomatic way that whatever was said could be denied if it got out. In a January 1970 State Department announcement regarding the talks going on in Warsaw, China was referred to as the People's Republic of China for the first time. Up to now, they had always been Communist China, Red China, Mainland China, anything except the official name of the country. Still, baby steps. Here's a famous story of American diplomats attending this fashion show in Warsaw. The Chinese were there as well. and The Americans tried to engage them to pass a message. And the Chinese... Well not having any specific instructions what to do in this case, avoided the Americans and downright skedaddled from the venue. And they were chased by their American counterparts. Neither side spoke a common language except Polish. So one of the diplomats said, Hey, we're from the American embassy and we want to meet your ambassador. President Nixon said he wanted to resume his talks with China. Stuff like that didn't happen every day. This is what not having normal relations was like. By February 1970, there had been 136 rounds of talks that had already taken place between the Chinese and the Americans, all unofficial, all secret. During the 136th round of talks, these between Chinese diplomat Lei Yang and Ambassador Stessel, Nixon achieved what he wanted, a meeting with no preconditions after all our hints and remarks exchanged at the ambassadorial level about what our intentions were, all conveyed through our common Pakistani friends, mainly Pakistani Ambassador Aga Hilali, who represented President Yahya Khan, who had a direct channel to Joe Lai himself. After receiving the message the Americans had sent through their mutual Pakistani friends, Joe replied this way, quote, "'This is not for me alone.' but from Chairman Mao and Vice Chairman Lin Biao as well. We thank the President of Pakistan for conveying to us orally a message from President Nixon. China has always been willing and has always tried to negotiate by peaceful means. Taiwan and the Straits of Taiwan are an inalienable part of China, which have now been occupied by foreign troops of the United States for the last 15 years. Negotiation and talks have been going on with no results whatsoever. In order to discuss this subject of the vacation of Chinese territories called Taiwan, a special envoy of President Nixon's will be most welcome. We have had messages from the United States from different sources in the past, but this is the first time the proposal had come from ahead, through ahead, to ahead the United States knows that Pakistan is a great friend of China, and therefore we attach importance to the message. End quote. All the back-channel dealings with our Pakistani friends since the summer of 1969, and all the discussions at so many Warsaw meetings had finally borne fruit. Now, how to handle it. In April 1970, Nixon ordered the State Department to be cut out of these secret discussions. The scuttlebutt from this news about making overtures to the Chinese for a direct meeting would deal a devastating blow to Nixon's presidency, which was already up to its ears in Vietnam. For the time being, every precaution had to be taken. Nothing could be left to chance. He had General Vernon Walters send a message to Zhou Enlai stating the U.S. State Department was not to be consulted and should purposely, for the time being, be left out of the loop. General Walters dutifully delivered this letter to the Chinese ambassador in France without consulting our own ambassador there. Everything else was going well. But then Nixon invaded Cambodia and the talk scheduled for May 20, 1970 faltered. In fact, They faltered for the last time. That was it for the Warsaw Talks. Mao went on one of his rampages against U.S. imperialism, which just infuriated Nixon. But it was all necessary bluster, as Mao couldn't just stand by and say nothing after Nixon started bombing China's good friend, Cambodia. So this was a... Temporary setback, but the common goal was still very much alive. And by July 1970, during a long overseas presidential trip, Nixon flat-out told our mutual friends in Romania and Pakistan that he was seeking direct talks with the PRC leaders. And this message was dutifully passed on to Joe. A national day, October 1st, 1970, Mao invited his old friend, the legendary China hand, Edgar Snow, to Tiananmen to view the celebrations. Anyone who studied Mao's China in college surely read Snow's famous 1937 book, Red Star Over China. He spoke fluent Chinese and was considered a true and loyal old friend of China. He stood next to Mao on the viewing platform. That's as VIP a position as one could get that Edgar Snow was an American was well-known. So what was he doing standing next to Chairman Mao on such an important and symbolic day as this? This was Mao sending out a little signal to anyone paying attention. The following month, Zhou Enlai told Snow that the China government had responded affirmatively to overtures from Washington to resume the Sino-American discussions that had ended abruptly in Warsaw in 1969. Then suddenly, out of nowhere, on October 13, 1970, full diplomatic relations were established between China and Canada. The breakthrough in relations between Ottawa and Beijing came under the leadership of Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau. This sure took a lot of air out of Nixon's balloon, as he was hoping to take all the glory as far as opening up China was concerned. So the urgency became even greater. We were still going back and forth, using the Pakistanis as our go-between. To get around the matter of Taiwan, Trudeau's government had utilized what became known as the Canadian Formula. that put the matter this way, quote, The Chinese government reaffirms that Taiwan is an inalienable part of the territory of the People's Republic of China. The Canadian government takes note of this position of the Chinese government. End quote. Although that uh, wouldn't pass muster today. Well, following China's acceptance of Canada's wording, more than two dozen countries later on used this takes note of verbiage to create that wiggle room on this most core and sensitive of all issues. On December 18, 1970, Keefe's 27th birthday, Mao sent for his old friend Edgar Snow who was holed up at the old Beijing hotel, and he asked him to join him for breakfast. Snow went and met him at his residence in Zhongnanhai, and after a lot of friendly banter back and forth, the conversation evolved to where Mao started talking about Nixon. Mao said to Edgar Snow, quote, He has been sending messages through various channels for quite some time, saying he wants to send a representative here, and we have said yes, we would receive him. But then he doesn't do anything about it. We haven't published the messages because the secret is to be kept. He's not interested in the Warsaw talks in Poland, and he wants to talk face-to-face with us. That's why I say, if Nixon is willing to come, I would be willing to talk with him. And it would be all right whether or not it be successful, and whether or not we quarrel, and whether he comes as a tourist or as president for talks. End quote. So you couldn't ask for something to be more in the bag than that. This came straight from Mao. No go-betweens to spin it or misconstrue his meaning. Edgar Snow went back and tried to contact various news outlets, but eh, he had always been sort of a fringe leftist among journalists, and the only ones who took great interest in what he had to say was the Nixon White House. Despite the optimism, by the end of 1970, Nixon wasn't having much luck making a breakthrough with the Chinese. Andrei Gromyko and the Russian ambassador Dobrynin were toying with Nixon about a date for a US-Soviet summit, which yeah, seemed like it was never going to happen. Vietnam was going nowhere and Nixon's only option seemed to be to escalate it more. The Cold War was still throbbing and the US was facing down the Soviets all over the world. December 8, 1970, the American side received a handwritten note from Joe Enlai passed to us via President Yahya Khan. Joe had explained that he was personally replying to this message because, as I already said, it had been passed to him from a head through a head to a head. And in this missive, Joe formally invited the U.S. to send an emissary to Beijing to discuss the Taiwan issue. The U.S. reply emphasized there had to be more dishes on the table than Taiwan. There were more matters of interest. Nixon was insistent that the talks cover a broader range of issues. However, he sent signals that vacating Taiwan of a U.S. military presence was possible. Enter 1971. George McGovern announced his candidacy for president and immediately called for recognition of Communist China and giving Beijing the seat in the U.N. and on the Security Council. He even told Nixon he should open up commerce between the two nations. Nixon, in the meantime, was bombing Laos, but he immediately went on record to say this military action was not directed at Communist China but China lambasted them anyway because they had to. Laos was on the border with Yunnan. And as the Nixon White House was trying to sort out a way to begin their direct talks, well, let's just use this as a perfect spot to put the bookmark in, and we'll pick up next time in February 1971. We all know what's going to happen come April. So do please consider coming back for a bit of excitement and drama. Until that time, Das East Laszlo Montgomery coming to you as always from the town they call the city of Los Angeles. You're listening to a special director's cut, 10-year anniversary, special edition of the CHP. See you again next time. pao chong.